of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. At Aloe, they have over 675 years of combined experience and expertise working with those who suffer from addiction, from the initial crisis intervention all the way through the detox, inpatient and outpatient treatments, levels of care, to aftercare and alumni services. They provide evidence-based drug and alcohol treatment that really works, including life skills building and experiential effective guidance in creating and maintaining healthy and lasting recovery and what does that mean it means aloe knows what they're doing when it comes to taking care of an addict in trouble they treat addicts with respect which is why i was so excited to have them as a sponsor bob forrest came up with their program along with his friend evan haynes and their friend bob they have amenities up the ass they have fucking surfing and horseback riding sound bath meditation and much more as I like to say, if you're fucked and willing to go to California, maybe you should consider going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at JustCoffee.coop out of Madison, Wisconsin. These guys know what they're doing when it comes to coffee. They make delicious coffee. I make JustCoffee.coop coffee in the French press. I make JustCoffee.coop coffee in the drip. I've had the super light humdinger. I've had the super dark super maya. I just got another box full of delicious just coffee coffee beans and I'm excited to grind them. My dad's down to his last pouch and I know not to touch it because he saves it for the important people. Justcoffee.coop. If you want to save some money, you put in the dopey pod code. If you want a really, really good cup of coffee from a company that practices social justice for coffee growers, then Just Coffee is the place. I've read some comments asking... Is it really a good cup of coffee, or are you just trying to make some money? Well, I'm trying to make some money, but the coffee is better than the money. If you want a good cup of coffee, go to justcoffee.coop and enter Dopey Pod. And here's the show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and I'm Dave, and I'm extremely excited. Uh, We just crossed the 2 million download barrier. I'm actually wearing my Dopey Just the Head black-on-black long-sleeve shirt to celebrate this accomplishment, and I feel really really great about it. I've heard from a bunch of people in the Dopey Nation. Thank you for all the, the nice messages. That's awesome. Um, it does make me think about Chris. I've been listening to a bunch of old episodes, which 
I've been totally hesitant about doing until now. And it's very beautiful, but it's also incredibly sad. Um, I don't really have much to say about it except that we're going to be obviously celebrating Chris this summer as we get to the anniversary of his death and his birthday, Christmas. But as for now, I know Chris would have been incredibly, incredibly just over the moon for two million downloads. I know when we started making the show, we never, ever, ever thought we were going to get that far. Or maybe we did and we just didn't know what it would look like. I was listening to an episode today where we were talking about, like, the first 200 downloads. And the first 200 downloads uh, were so magical. And and when we first started getting emails and just hanging out, you know, it was me and Chris at my apartment on the Lower East Side before me and Linda got back together. And you could hear the fish tank bubbling in the background. We would do four episodes at a time. So it was very much like hanging out. And um, and I definitely miss that the most. The other thing that just occurred to me when I was listening to it was just how innocent and sweet Chris was. Like, he was really funny, and obviously he did a ton of drugs, but the reason the show was so great uh, was because of how innocent he was and how, like, aw shucks he was and how, like how open he was and how smart he was. I remember it was the I was listening to another one just now and it was the end of an episode and he wanted to end every episode before, you know, toodles and all that stuff. He wanted to end every episode with like a weird drug fact. And the first drug fact he did was about somebody in Africa, I think, who uh after you shot up heroin, somebody else would draw your blood with a gigantic syringe. And Chris loved talking about gigantic syringes. Like, that really, like, warmed his heart. And the idea was that somebody could draw blood out of you and put it into the next person and get them high, which is, of course, a crock of shit. But Chris loves stuff like that. And uh, it really, really made the show great. Um, I love Chris. I miss Chris. And um, there will be multiple Chris tributes over the summer. Uh, Before we get on with it, I want to read you something I just got on the train today. And I love getting emails and I love getting messages from you guys. And it 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 just it's it's a real community that's being formed. And uh, and you guys are really special. And it it means a lot to me. So I'm going to read this to you. I just got it. It says, Dave, bro, I love your podcast. My name's Pat LB. I live in a little town outside of Vancouver, Canada. Really long story quick. I could not quit fentanyl. But my addiction did not start with opiates. I did almost every drug. I drank every day because it was the norm where I grew up. My father did not like me until I became his drinking and using buddy. Talk about confusing. So after using and selling every upper and psychedelic through my teens, I was finally introduced to my queen joy, sweet Percocet. I found out that I can do ecstasy and coke and drink nightly, conscience-free, hangover-free, if I had a handful of oxy for the morning. It wasn't long after that I realized fuck hangovers and just stopped drinking altogether and used Oxy and Xanax full time. Soon after that, the Percocet and Oxy connections dried up. They got too expensive and I was lost. I thought, okay, I guess this is where people get clean or move on to heroin. I didn't either. I found this guy who sold green Oxy 80s. I should have known something was wrong when the guy gave me the first four for free. I was like, score. Why are they so cheap? I had never heard of fentanyl. But fuck, man, the pills were good. 
They did the trick, and they were at least half the price, sometimes three times cheaper. Ridiculousness. I can barely type this. I don't know how I've survived. God don't want me dead yet. Ha-ha. Or God don't want me yet. Haha. So, about a couple months ago, I'm listening to Omar Pinto's Recovery Revolution, and he plugged your podcast. So I thought I'll check it out. And man, I fucking love it. I could use you guys in my life. So I'm on episode 60, and I see you've done a show with Dr. Drew recently. So I was like, hey, cool, I'll check it out. Bad fucking idea. First thing Drew says is, now that Chris is dead. Like, what? I don't even know you guys. That fucking hit me in the heart. I refuse to jump ahead and find out in a rush how he's passed. Did I hear him right? Even though I want to know so bad. How? What? Why? I'm going to finish listening to all the podcasts, and I'll find out soon enough. After years of struggling in silence and relapsing over and over, countless overdoses, waking up with piss pants and puke and burn on shirts, I finally found a methadone program. As Chris would say, a harm reduction therapy program. But I've been blessed with a hate for tobacco, but I was raised in a grow, uh, so I've smoked weed every day since I was 13. Methadone was my savior. I never used uh, opiate painkiller again. I never used fentanyl again. I haven't misused medication since I started methadone. I haven't had a single beer or vodka or wine with the in-laws at dinner. And now I've been coming down off the methadone for the past two years, one point every two weeks. I'm in my final year and should be done by next spring. Grateful. I am so fucking blessed. Full disclosure, I know people in recovery hate weed. But I did not quit weed. It's next, it's next, my last crutch. I know that's fucked, but this world is fucked, and I'm weak and couldn't quit it all at once. The shit we spew. Anyways, that's a bit of me. Uh, keep the show coming, please. Be very proud of who you are because you are one cool dude. Thank you. You guys will never know how much you've helped me feel normal in this fucked up world. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Dopey Nation. I have found my people. And um, and thank you, Pat. That's a beautiful, beautiful message. And um, I think it says it all, really. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I always say shit about people who aren't 100% sober or taking this or that. To be honest, I don't care. Everybody should do whatever makes them happy. I just want to see people be happy and joyous and free and mostly free and happy. You know, that, that's the, the, the one and two. And for me, it, it happened with full abstinence because I can't use anything a little bit. It's not how I am. Um, and this is an exciting episode because Chris, who had terrible, terrible taste in music, had a really good idea, uh, about two and a half years ago, he heard a song by an artist named Anders Osborne. The song was called the mind of a junkie. And we were at my dad's house and he played it for me and he was like, we should get this guy on the show. So like two and a half years ago, we started trying to get Anders Osborne on the show. I had my friend trying to get him on. I tried to get him on. Finally, uh, I don't know why, Anders Osborne agreed to come on. He's this amazing singer-songwriter, guitar player out of New Orleans, and, uh, and, he, and he came on the show and talked to us. And then we catch up with my buddy DK after that. So stay tuned uh, to a very, very, very beautiful 2 million-plus download episode of uh, Dopey. Here's Anders Osborne. And just so you know, the sound quality with the Anders Osborne interview is not great. But stick with it. It's, a, it's an awesome conversation. So here he is. All right. This is very exciting. Uh, about two years ago, Chris uh, – I'm in my dad's house, by the way. About two years ago, Chris okay. came to me with uh, a video of this dude in a van singing a song called Mind of a Junkie. 
uh, the dude's name was Anders Osborne, and it was amazing. And, and I've kind of been courting to get you on the show since then, and finally we got Anders on the phone. What's going on, man? What's happening? Everything's good. Everything's good. You're, you're in New Orleans, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm just chilling at the house. I'm getting ready to do uh, some recording this week, so... Um, I'm painting. I'm getting the lyrics straight and making sure I have enough coffee. I got stung. I'm allergic to bees. And yesterday I got stung. Here, check this. Talking about dopey stories. This is a sober dopey story. Me and my wife, we uh, have bees in our backyard. We got like eighty thousand bees, and we're taking care of them and making honey and all this. And I've developed a bee allergy. So I've been to the ER four times, four times in a year, dude. It is the worst. So I go into the shock. I smack myself with a needle. Pound. We go downtown. <laughs> it's like last night. It happened again. I'm like, ah. So I drive down there, and then you have to sit in the ER, and they jack you up. Not only the Benadryl and all that, but they give you so much steroids. So I woke up 40 times all through the night. Finally, at six, I gave up, and I look like a tomato, and I go right between I love everybody, and I think I'm going to kill everybody. That's the emotion I'm, I'm writing right now. It's really beautiful. All right. Well, that makes sense, and that sounds like a very addiction-heavy addiction, addiction heavy story. You've got the emergency room. <laughs> you have a needle. You have vacillating feelings. Did you, did you find yourself like kind of feeling like, wow, this doesn't feel like sober Anders? No, it, it totally. When I was in there, you know, I, that's exactly why I brought it up. It's it's like somehow these little moments, they show up anyway. They just keep showing up. That's, I guess it's just me, man. It's what I do. It's, it's uh, yeah. It's hysterical, though. That's a way of doing it. It's, it's What's a, that? I think it's classic. It's a classic uh, drug addict, alcoholic, beekeeper story. What made you want to get 80,000 bees? What was the plan there? It's my wife. It was my wife, and she'd been studying it for 10 years, just reading about it, you know, just casually as a hobby. And she said one day about four years ago, she goes, man, I'm— I'm going to get some bees. I'm going to get a hive. Then she got two, three, and it just stacked them up. And I was like, man, this is great. And then the honey that came out of this, it's indescribable. I mean, it's a whole different thing. It's like when you're picking an orange from a fresh organic tree, you know what I mean? And you eat it right there. It's the same experience of just the flavor burst and all that. So you would say so you, we have, loved you, it. And then, you have the kill dank honey. Straight from the bee, the real thing. Yeah, it's you just scrape it off, and then the whole family gets together, and you press it with your hands, and you squeeze it from the. Anyway, it's it's a whole thing that you got to go through, and the ritual is so beautiful, and there's honey all over the kitchen, and we're filling all these jars, and it's just gorgeous. And then three years into it, I just I guess got stung enough times, and. You know, because I'm who I am, I guess, I developed uh, an allergy, and I had a severe, you know, anaphylactic shot when I went into, and it was like, whoa, so we took me down there, but we don't want to get rid of the bees, so we're trying to figure out what the heck to do. 
<laughs> you got to figure out how to build up a, a, a bee immunity or something. That's crazy. When did you get sober? Yeah. How long ago did you get sober? I got uh, 2009, January 14th. They shipped me out to a new perception in California, um, 2013. And it was, I had had a, like a run. They were trying to help me make some money. I couldn't, I couldn't work the last couple of years. I was just living in the park and it, it was pretty bad. But they scraped together a little five, six day tour. And, and I, of course, was, going at it pretty hard at the time it was more freebasing and stuff and uh so i was doing a lot of that and so i had been up for many days i can't remember most of the time of that tour i was up Uh, so they just talked me into going out there and then i woke up on the 14th and i was like okay you like woke up in treatment basically yeah, like, you know, because you drink the whole way. The, the way they lured me in, they were like, we were riding in a van. It was a songwriter, three guys, three friends of mine. Another sober friend of mine who was open about it, too. Just an amazing cat, Mike Zito. He was part of the little tour. We were in a van. He was driving. And he was, like, on the phone with my manager. and He was like, like, yo, okay, Andrew's fucked up, do? man. He was like, we got to do something about Anders. He's all fucked up. He's sleeping in the park. What did he say? Like, how did he, what was Yeah, that? no, they, yeah, they just got together. So Dr. John, you know, Mac and Ivan Neville and my manager, Ruben Williams, and they called Harold at Music Cares uh, and said, man, we, we got to help our friend. Can you help us pay for this and set him up in a, with a bed? So they just, they talked to me. And they, you know, said, "Are you ready?" I was, you know, re- rejecting the idea. But I remember sitting there in my in my head. I was going, "No, I just need to rest. Oh, I just need to rest. If I could just rest, I just need to relax and rest for a minute." So something was kind of calling on me to say yes. And then, so what I said, of course, was. I'll only go if I get a first-class ticket. Nice. <laughs> and my manager on the other side, he was screaming at me. He was like, and I didn't hear this, but he was like, that guy is fucking out of his mind. Jesus Christ, I'm going to come over right now just just slap him. And then Mike, that was talking to him, Mike Zeta, he was smart. He, cause he's in recovery, and he goes, yep, your manager says, no problem. First class the whole way. Guaranteed. You got it. Brilliant. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in. So that because he, he knows the difference. I got a middle seat, two stops, three flights to LA, sixteen dollar fucking flight. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. But anyway, they got me out there, and um, so that's that's my recovery date. But do you remember? You remember when like? Because I'm sure forever. I know that when I was getting when I was trying to get clean. I would want to get clean, but a lot of me didn't want to get clean, and I would fight it. And like, yeah. and, and it took me a million years to finally get clean. Uh, what was the yeah. the real like uh, surrender, or when you finally were like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna do it." Like, what was that kind of thought in your head? Uh, it was about three and a half weeks into the the treatment uh, program in there, and in the beginning, I was just like. 
you know, I was really not going to do it. I was just going to leave my and go back home. I couldn't wait to get back and you know, get into my great life that I thought I had. And, uh, and, but, you know, I kept, I couldn't walk. My, uh, the DPs were so bad, you know, I kept sitting on myself and it, it was just, it was a bad scene. And, uh, I, I'd say about three and a half weeks into it, I sat up in that little twin bed. It was three grown up, you know, grown men sitting there in our PJs. And I looked around and all of a sudden, I, there really is, I mean, it was very, very clear when the moment happened, and it was just like a movie inside, like a film starts playing in my head. <laughs> yeah, and, and and every single freaking thing I had done, every bad thing I had done since I was thirteen, fourteen, especially the period with my kids where I left them at school, I didn't pick them up. I was doing really bad stuff in the little kids' stall on the mother, you know, and the father. Daughter dance, like it was just every little thing. Wait, what, wait, wait, Anders, Anders, gone. what kind of bad stuff were you doing at the father daughter dance? I was freebasing in the kids' uh, toilet stall. Oh my goodness! While she was, she's six, six or seven years old, waiting for me to come out of the bathroom so we can keep dancing. You know, you're like, I just need one more hit to to keep dancing. Um, no, I hear you. That's terrible. So yeah. Yeah, so anyway, <clears throat> so that stuff, it started playing, and, you know, I just started crying so freaking hard, and I just bawling and bawling, and I couldn't stop, and and I just, you know, I was trying to make the tape stop playing. I was just like, stop, I can't look at this, please. But I remember, and then the counselor, Stanley came up, and Thelma, who owns the place, they're, like, helping me, and comforting me and Stanley kept saying ha you call this a cry this is nothing you should have seen me let's go let's go and he you know kept telling me let's go all right you think you're a grown man but you're just a little baby boy let's go let's get that out wow and then in the in the middle of all that I was sitting there you know 43 years old and felt like I was literally 14 and I was just bawling and then all of a sudden that's when it all switched, and I just went, oh, my God, I am so sick. I really need every – someone needs to tell me what to do because I can't make decisions anymore. This is where I ended up when I was in charge. I have to stop doing this. So that was like – and I knew everything was – it was like – it was completely different after that, and it has been different. As, as freaking hard as it is, Every single day, even 10 years into it, there's a lot of times when, you know, that addictive personality is just, he's a, he's a pain in the butt for everybody. <laughs> right. But uh, it's still, I, I just knew that, you know, I had missed a very essential part of what life is all about. I had focused on just a handful of, of plants, you know, the poppy, the weed, the uh, coca or barley, you know, something to make liquor with. I mean, I, those are the only plans I was interested in. I'd never climbed to the top of a coconut tree. Have you? No, I haven't. I've never been to the Maldives. <laughs> I've never, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, all the things I start realizing, 
there are only a handful of plans that I care about. What if I don't care about those and start focusing on the millions and millions of things I can do instead? Right. And, to- total and possibility, right? Total possibility. Yeah. It, it turns everything, and I went, oh, I've looked at it the wrong way. And that, I realized that I had missed it. My life was being filtered through this handful of things. That if I didn't have that, my life was useless. Now I flipped it. That was the tiniest little part of what life has to offer. It doesn't do anything. It's just a very, very small moment. So it felt like, okay, that chapter's gone. That was like an introductory to a book. Let's start reading the freaking book. It's so funny, though, because I, I remember when I was young and I started using, I always felt like, there were infinite possibilities from using substances. Like that was the initial thought. Yeah. Like there, there, there's so many things yeah. that can happen and so many adventures and so many different ways of looking at things. But then, it, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later, it all got boiled down to the same one. And, and I realized I hadn't done anything either. So, I mean, that story is like, yeah. it, it's, it's very perfect. And then as a musician, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur musician. I'm an amateur songwriter. I love music. I love writing. I love playing. But I didn't really get anywhere with it. Um, I, and I remember yeah. when I started using how much I would love to play high um, and how much yeah. I would love to. Um, I remember, like, when I had a bad heroin habit, I would, if I couldn't, you know, get to a nod, I would just pick up my guitar and do some shitty dope, and I would find a nod just because I would get lost in the playing. And uh, and eventually, I yeah. just put down the guitar, and I put down everything I loved. And um, and when I got to sober, and I could pick it up again, it was uh, it was such a it was just a blessing. I was just psyched that I could play. Uh, what was yeah. it like for being such a high level musician? Like, did you play when you were high? Like, what was the difference between sober and high as a musician? Um. It's like, you know, the initial six-plus months were very, very difficult when, they, they were, when I got sober, I was saying. So uh, it, let, me, let me start over. So basically, when I used to um, mask my insecurities and, and the, uh, you know, the extremely low self-esteem, Yes. that I had developed, the, the filters that I had developed that had turned into a narcissist and, you know, just someone that truly couldn't stand himself and was always so afraid and filled with insecurities. That guy, or those two personalities, are fighting really hard. When I discovered that the drugs, they would just completely compress and eradicate the tops and the bottoms of that kind of swing and put me right in that place where I went, I don't care. Right. I just don't care. I'm all good. I'm all good. So what that created was an extremely positive um, project or trajectory into the performance part. Right. Now the writing and the, the, the structure of it, the crafting, the learning, the finesse, the details, all the things that come with the actual communication and the connection of the art form, those are completely gone, or they were for me. None of it is existing. It is just the narcissist is thriving. 
he's in there. He's working so hard on filling the ego with, I feel good. I feel good. This is for me. I am great. I am beautiful. They all love me. I. <laughs> they love me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, they, they love me because I love me. I, I, I. And why shouldn't they you love me when so you're so great? You know, I love that. All right. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So what then what happened in sobriety is I didn't have that blanket. So I'm just up there naked. And I remember going, I don't even know. Did I lean on my left <clears throat> leg or my right leg? Or how did I stand up here? What was the position of my mic? Did I sink with the mic coming from below up or straight? Or I can't remember. And all these things became very self-conscious. And then when that changed, insane how much better it got. You can't even compare. I know when I'm boring. I go, yep, okay, stop noodling, no more, go to the bridge, go to the solo. This is the audience, I'm losing them. The solo doesn't go anywhere. Uh, When I'm writing, I start to work on the small details with patience. I can craft a song for six years, or I can open up the channels and write it in three minutes. All these variables are now at my disposal. And I'm just totally lighthearted about the whole thing. Uh, sometimes I've got to watch the ambition part that wants to be loved and liked and approved, and which is the same as I want to be famous, I want to be rich, I want to be really hailed as somebody special that all musicians have. You got to balance those two things to make sure that the ambition is, for me anyway, it's uh, funneled into improving the craft so I can communicate to people. Right. So it's serving the right master. It's not for me. Yeah, because the gift is for other people, not for me. It's so easy to get caught up, though. Let me ask you this. Do you think, like, when the Rolling Stones put sticky fingers together, right, who who was the gift for? Like, where was the narcissism versus serving the craft? You know, because that's some of the highest end rock and roll you could look at, and they were... They were pretty out of their minds. But, like, do you think they were serving, you know what I mean? Do you think that even came into it? Yeah, I definitely think that they're looking at uh, showing off, which is another way of serving, is to, to kind of do something really cool and hip. And I also think that, you know, uh, and first of all, I had no idea what they were thinking. So right. for me to make a, a <laughs> so statement I apologize, on that, I apologize it's, it's for the I apologize for yeah. my asinine but, question. But, but my own reflection over it would be, if it was me, any kind of enormous greatness that comes about, you know, when it, when it's known, people know, like, Kind of Blue with Miles and all this stuff, whatever, these enormous recordings that we have. Right. There's probably hundreds of those that stand out for some reason. Those, I, I believe, they're accidental. They're just... It's, it's lining up. So many things need to line up. There needs to be the right producer, engineer, the right day, the moon, vegetation, the food they ate, the climate. Everything has to line up together with the songs, performance, and all. It's not like one guy comes in with his great vision and then he gets it done. Right. That's right. never how recordings work. There's so many variables that have to line up. 
And then it has to line up in time for the listener to go, hell yeah. So I think that was one of those where it all lined up and it's a gift to the world. It's beautiful. Well, but to confuse that with Mick, with Mick Jagger, that's where I think you can, you can get into shaky ground when you try to put it on one person. Of course, of that's, course. And I think you're... Not, yeah. yeah. I get it. Um, and when um, when yeah. my friend Chris showed me, it was you. He, what he showed me was the video of you in the van with your friend playing Mind of a Junkie, and I was like, "Wow, th- <laughs> this is interesting." And then when I heard yeah. the actual track, it's crazy. You know, it's it's long and it has this crazy solo section. And and like, did you find that that track came together in that sort of a way? Because it seems like the the response yeah, was I- gigantic. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, and again, that was all accidental. I was so frustrated. I was mad at the band. They weren't playing it right. And it was all this shit. I was like, I can't hear it. My headphones fell off. My guitar was out of tune. There was so many things wrong. And then you listen back and you start working and you go, golly, this feels amazing. And then you just, you just, you kind of realize that something happened because I wasn't, I wasn't aware of what was happening or something. I don't know. I just, you get lucky. But yeah, I love that track. I, and usually I can hear, I can hear afterwards. Let, let's say if I still listen to it a little bit, I check it out three months later and it moves me, then I know. Right. All right. This is, we did exactly what we, you know, uh, were supposed to do. We contributed something to the world and, Hopefully people will get to hear it. If not, that's okay too. And you, you just you just leave it at that. They're just little snapshots of people, you know. And what made you want to write that song? Because I mean, that song. I'm going to put that song on this episode at the end of it, um, and I think it will okay. really speak to our audience. But it's it's like it's a real snapshot of what it's like to be uh, an addict, um, specifically yeah. a heroin addict. I, I is what I got. But why don't you tell me about about how the song came together, writing it. Well, I had just gotten sober, honestly. I was clean, and I I was going in between. I was on a lot of antipsychotic. You know, I was diagnosed with bipolar, first depression, and then bipolar and this and that. In my mind, I kind of, I think I knew that, well, it's just, it's just, I'm just an addict. These are personalities that come with this, this whole journey. But I took all that stuff, and... My addict personality, the first two months, two, three months, was so prevalent. I mean, it was so many things that I did. If I, if a tire broke on the bike when I was trying to get to the meetings, I would, instead of fixing the bike or, you know, leaving it there, locking it up, I carried the bike to the meeting. Because in my mind, there was, there was this sort of obsessive behavior that I have to, I have to take the bike to the meeting. Right. So it would be like weird stuff like that all the time. So I was sitting with that really heavy uh, addict mentality. And I was reminiscing about where I was just six months earlier. And so I start writing this thing and I had the chorus idea, this beautiful major kind of uh, pretty thing. And I had that idea and something came up and then the, the lyrics and then I started writing the verses and it was all about, you know, we're working on, we and I was using we, we're working on a, 
Manson on the Hill and blah, 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 blah. And I started playing it for my wife. And I said, what do you think? I love this chorus. It's so beautiful. And I had kind of worked out the words to that, most of it. He goes, yeah, but the verse, what is that? That's, that's not how you are at all. <laughs> I said, I'm not? Said, no, why don't, you, why don't you write exactly how you are all through the day? And I said, really? She goes, yeah. So I, and it all came just flowing out of me. And at the end, I went, holy shit, this is really kind of too exposed. But my wife said, that's it. That's right. how you are. <laughs> and I went, okay. And then I could never have foreseen that people would be so, you know, enjoying the song so much. I really didn't know. You really, you you really lay it down, though. I mean, it's just you you really put it out there. What an addict trying to be in recovery feels. Uh, It just starts. I'm nervous. I'm sweating. I hate to make amends. Bunch of opinions. I'm always made made offense. Um, I'm always on the fence. Yeah, I don't know. The lyrics. I just googled it and it came up. Made offense. Sorry. I'm always on the (laughs) fence. Pissed off and sad at the same time. Please, somebody save me from my crazy mind. I just the whole thing. My favorite was uh, was uh, I ain't got no over, no appetite, but I still overeat. I mean, that's that's the best. <laughs> you know, it's just it's everything that we do. You know, and, and it, it's and and the reason I think that it was such a a groundswell of love is because we we go through it. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's yeah. it's it's a yeah. song for yeah. all of us. And, and it's beautiful, and, uh, and I love it. Um, and I also listen to... Thank you. Um, I've been listening to Fool's Gold, and, you know, I love that. I like Flower yeah. Box. I'm, like, I'm getting into your stuff, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, and I notice your new record is called Buddha and the and Blues. And the Blues. Buddha, Buddha and the Blues. And the blues. Yeah. And, how, and, like, I had a, a guy on last week who was talking a little Buddhism and... Buddhism is starting to come into into dopey a little bit. How how affected by Buddhism are you? Well, I think the Buddhism itself. I wouldn't claim that I'm well versed in it because it you know there are people that really know it. But what I love is. How do I put it? I medit the last six years. I meditate really, really, really frequently. I'm, it's it's been the game changer for me. Is to learn as many different ways and uh, uh, approaches to finding my authentic self. To uh, basically the desire for enlightenment and aware, you know, self awareness and an awakening. That process has changed everything. So in that process, I have gravitated back to Buddhism, not like the hippie version of me when I was 17, but like for real, like just reading a little bit about it or reading Dalai Lama's book and nice. getting some Zen books. And, so. and then <clears throat> once I get into that, then that leads you back to Hinduism and then yogis and spiritual teachers in general and then with youtube today there's so much available you can spend hours and hours on with alan watts and all these beautiful people <clears throat> they're talking about these things so i think what's happened for me is there is a 
uh, or I have received a glimpse of the fact that this is a mind creation and the ego is just one part of my makeup. There's a mind, body, and spirit. The three components of us need to be in balance. And that's what's been off, especially through the addiction years, the 25 plus years of, of living so hard and, you know, in this uh, fearful state where I was afraid of myself and everything in the world. And I just wanted to be loved so badly and accepted that I forgot that I am already loved and I'm already perfect. My purpose is not what I do. My purpose is to be me. Right. I am born and therefore, therefore I am, I am that. I am this. This is who I am. And that's what I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be something else. I'm not supposed to be a mountain climber and show off or be a musician and be famous. I'm supposed to just be me. And then all the other things become activities that I do to enjoy myself and to help other people, to be of service of some sort. And so to answer your question, Buddhism brought me back to all these things that I think most people at least have a sense of all through their life, but we replace it with drugs, alcohol, sex, food, entertainment, and so forth. Right, whatever, you know? we, whatever we can. Whatever we can cram in there, we, we replace yeah. it with. Uh, yeah. Did you yeah. ever read, yeah. um, did you ever read that Herman Hess book, Sid Arthur? Yeah, it's just gorgeous. It's, it, that was my first introduction as a teenager. That's why I brought That's great that you brought that. I love that movie. I mean, I love that book. It's like the greatest book. book. It's like the greatest adventure book. And it's like so spirit. Yeah. It's just so soulful. It's such a beautiful book. And I would, if you guys are listening, you should totally check out that book. It's amazing. Um, yeah. It's, my, it's, it's really, really life-changing. Yeah. In such a gentle way. Yeah. I, I always like, I read it every, every X amount of years. And my, my you know, Chris yeah. used to read it every X amount of years, too. And uh, and I think I'm going to read it again. I also love like how Buddhism, you know, I mean, I'm not a Buddhist at all. I just love that book. And I know that yeah. I'm, I'm a Jew from New York that works in the deli. So I know that life is <laughs> suffering. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, <laughs> so, and don't tell me otherwise, mother. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, no, it is, it is suffering, man. It is suffering. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. But I also love the corollary between recovery and Buddhism and, and discovering. I mean, my favorite thing about this, my, my recovery this time is, is really discovering the great reality within, like what you were talking about, being myself, you know, yeah. be, and like and what a what yeah. a joy and what a freedom it is. You know, I, it's, it's amazing. It's miraculous. Um, now, I, yeah, I, it, it is. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just excited. I'm excited no, 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 that we're vibing. I'm you up. I'm, <laughs> Don't yeah. worry. Um, go ahead, babe. So you came up in New Orleans, you know, and I, I got to yeah. go to New Orleans uh, recently. It was a lifelong dream to go, and me and my wife went down there. It was amazing. Um, but it's yeah. like it's a real dark city. I mean, it reminds me of like a, a, a kind of soulful, smaller southern New York because there's so many different things happening, you know. It, it, it's yeah. it was like it's very happening and it's very but it's 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 like dark in that it's like mystical and magical and like the yeah. music is is just like dark harmonies minor harmonies like just cool shit everywhere yeah. um and i imagine yeah. 
there's a ton of alcohol. There's obviously a ton of alcohol. It's embedded in the culture, and getting fucked up is kind of embedded in the culture, right? Yeah, it is. There's a celebratory aspect uh, that I think it stems from, you know, both the decadence, you know, things of the past where people with a lot of money, affluent people would have their sort of, I guess it'd be like every day just, yeah, decadence. And then from the hardship of people working really hard, everything from, you know, the uh, slaves and, and, you know, just blue-collar, hard-working down at the ports and salespeople, that you develop a system of making sure that you have some sort of relief all the time. Right. And so everything has everything has been... Now, this is just my, my two cents. You know, I don't have historical or any uh, expertise on how this came about, so take it lightly. It's just another human being making up stories. But basically... <laughs> What I what I do think is that it's ingrained in us, but I I think that's not just here. The difference here is that it's celebratory, and that can be deceiving. All of it is it's about kind of yeah yeah let's get together yeah let's meet for drinks down there. Okay, Friday brunch or Friday lunches become these three four hour you know sittings at Galatoire if you have that money. Or somewhere else, you spend four hours just sitting there drinking and eating and talking. When you meet somebody at the grocery store, you literally, oh, my God, I haven't seen you in three years. How you been? Oh, you got, yeah, are they going to college? That's great. And boom, it's an hour and 15 minutes later, and your ice cream has melted in your car. I mean, it's like standard. You just do that. And I think that is the specific thing with New Orleans. Some people have visions and dreams of coming down here and drink themselves to death in the French Quarter apartment. I get all that too, but it's more the 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 gladness of the heart that we're searching for. That's always been you know connected with drugs and alcohol in some sort, right? And the entertainment and the music and so forth. But what I think is a big issue. And this is global, but especially in the Western world. I am happy. I drink or smoke weed or whatever. I feel so good. Let's go to the beach. Let's get a Corona. Let's have some dinner. Let's have a glass of wine. After dinner, let's get a little drink. I feel sad. I have a drink. I have, so every morning I go to sports events. Let's have a drink. I do this. I have a drink. Family reunion, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Bam, bam. They just don't, we don't realize that we have been brainwashed by a company that needs to sell their product. Right. Okay, and it's happening to weed now, too. I see it. It's all. It's medicine. It's medicine. It's medicine. It's going to be healing. It's going to be healing. And what they don't understand is that it is healing, but the strains, there are over 600 known strains of, of cannabis, and one strain will completely cure colon cancer, but not kidney cancer. At all. So they're studying this, and right now we're only aware of, this is an Israeli um, uh, science lab, I think it's in Tel Aviv, and they're really, they've been doing many years of studies on this. They only have about 50 strains that they have, you know, really put some time into, 
And now what we're doing is just a general of the the CBD oils and all this stuff. It's just a general of a bunch of different, you know what I mean? Andrews, we're, we're, talk, we're talking about imbibing in New Orleans, and now you're fucking talking about 600 cannabis strains in Tel Aviv. <laughs> what the fuck happened here? It's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the steroids. It's the steroids, <laughs> That's funny. My, what I wanted right, to know, there, what, what I wanted to know. Take me back. Take me back. No, we're here. We're good. I think it's funny. But what I wanted to know is about, like, living soberly in New Orleans. Like, is it challenging? Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> the drug culture, that shit. Is it challenging? That's great. Okay. You with me? Yeah, yeah, I'm right. here. I'm here. I got you, I got you, I got you. I just laughed at myself. I couldn't <laughs> believe it, how far out I got. My wife complains all the time. I said, what are you talking about now? Well, you're, you're a kind person that I could bring you back, and you can laugh at yourself. That's really the, the root of, uh, oh. of sanity, is to laugh uh. at yourself. You know? That's my oh, whole it's, sanity. It's, it's just, uh, I couldn't believe how far out I got. So... Living sober, you said? No, I mean like New Orleans, like sobriety in New Orleans, because it's such a like Uh, a a get downtown, you know? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you have to change friends and you have to change habits. It's, I'm not going to lie. It's, there are moments when it's, it's really, it's a drag. I gotta say, it's, it's definitely a thing, but you know, like sober anywhere, you get up earlier, you go for walks and exercise and you eat better and you go to meditation, you know, um, stuff. You do different things and then you start meeting a lot of people, anything from normies to, you know, sobriety recovery people and go to meetings and you just develop like a different network. Even though we're in the middle of it, maybe during the, at Christmas, the holidays are really kind of rough. Right. First of all, it's just like so, so much pressure and stuff. And then there are all these Christmas parties and get-togethers, and it's, it's a lot of intensity. So I usually go to a bunch of meetings in December. Right. So, you know, right after Thanksgiving, and then I go, okay, let's go. But I think it is pretty tricky. It's, it's, it's like you said about New York. It's everything is linked to... The party. You know, intoxicated. Right, right. Yeah, right. party. You, you're supposed to be intoxicated. That's part of the culture. You've got you to gotta, you gotta find a way to kind of navigate in and out of these groups. You know, it's like go to these events and art uh, openings and shows or come uh, assistant friends of mine put on this beautiful stellar show, but it was at a non-alcohol event in the Marini Opera House. Uh, down in the bywater certain area. So they only have you know, a little container with water that you can fill up. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And they just played an hour, talked a little bit, no one, not like a rock show. Just They just performed from 7.30 to about 8.45. And those are things that go to more. And so you just have to change it up a little right. bit. You know, it's like my wife always wants to go to Jazz Fest in New Orleans, you know? And it was like, it was my <laughs> dream to go to, go to it. But to be yeah. honest with you, yeah. I don't want to go sober, 
uh, because of all that yeah. waiting around and all that weed. I love weed. I miss, I mean, like, I love pot. When you go down your Tel Aviv 600 strains, I'm with you. I love pot. I love getting high. <laughs> and I don't love standing yeah. around a festival waiting and smelling bud. Like, that just, I don't love that feeling. And it's cha- that's challenging for yeah. me, you know, those moments. Yeah, it and, is rough. Um, it's, it's really tough. And it, 10 years into it, it's still tough. I, I still have exit plans and, and enter plans. I go, I'm going to show up at this time, and I'm going to leave around this. Right. And as soon as I feel this way, I'm, I'm going. Right. But it doesn't bother me like it used to that I have that. I just, that's just part of my life now. I go, that's fine. But, but it definitely is, you know, you see these people having this very simple and, and a quick off switch. They go... They're stressed. They get parking. They drive. Blah, 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 they come in, drink, off. They're right. all, you can see it in their eyes. Boom. They're there. Right. They're so done with the day. We don't have that. Right. There's no freaking off switch. Right. Whatever we do, this stuff is still just spinning inside. I'm like, God damn. So I think that is what that environment does to me. It makes me see so clearly that I don't have the off switch. So I try not to be part of that too often because it just, it's irritating. <laughs> no, I hear you. Do, do you think that when you it play, when you play, does the off switch kind of happen? Like you get lost in playing and, you know, that kind of thing? Sometimes. I'd say meditation and uh, running. Like I like running four or five miles in the morning. Those are the two things that, like working out or something, but especially running. I get a lot of dopamine flowing. And I think those two are the best off switch. Music is still, you know, it's my job for 35 years, right, 35 right. years. So there's a lot of thinking and crafting and designing the nights for the other people. Right. But right. I have moments where, you know, I lose myself maybe five, ten minutes right. through the concert where I'm we're completely lost and it's beautiful. <clears throat> but most of it is I'm keeping an eye on everything, making sure audience is, is with us. Right. It is working. Well, that's what a band leader has it's to not, do. You know, that's what you have. That? That's what a band leader has to do. So I hear you. Yeah, I uh, think so. You you have to be you have to be alert. Yeah, mm-hmm. man. I I, I I you know this whole thing happened uh, getting you on because we have this little fan group page uh, called the Dopey Nation. The Dopey Nation are the Dopey fans, you know, and, and somebody posted <laughs> on the Dopey Nation. Um, your Send Me a Friend program. And I was like, holy shit, Anders oh. Osborne, I forgot I had been trying, because I had been trying, to, I'd been, I was writing, you know, your people here and there, here and there, and uh, and recently the show got a little bit bigger, and I think they were like, oh yeah, that, that sounds like it has a little bit of a reach. <laughs> and, and I mentioned Send Me a Friend, and they were like, oh yeah. So, so Send Me a Friend sounds like the fucking greatest thing for these moments where a musician is stuck yeah. Why don't you just lay it out there for the Dopey Nation, what exactly it is? Okay, so the idea came a few months into my sobriety. First, I've been told, you know, at the rehab and all the counselors and people that I talked to said, you should probably take a break from playing. environment is, is pretty sketchy for you. Take a year or two, do something different if you can. And I remember going, what are you talking about? I barely finished high school. I don't have a degree. I, what am I supposed to do? Like, 
I, I was stunned by the idea of it. I'm like, no, no, I got to hit the road. I got to make some money. My house is in foreclosure. My wife doesn't want to be with me. I'm bankruptcy. Like all this stuff was just, I'm like, I got to hit the road and see if I can at least save the freaking house. So I, it was just a different environment that was being suggested to me that I thought this doesn't make any sense. So I went back on the road and I started playing. And then I realized this is difficult. Holy crap. I know what they're talking about. Right. Then I shared it. I shared at a meeting and these two burly. Here, wait, hold on. Hold on. Anders, 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 hold on for one second. My father has six phones and they're all ringing. Hold on one second. Hold on. Mm-hmm. My, my cross to bear. It's fucking, my dad is, is 75 years old. I, I live in Long Island, so I record the show at his apartment. He has two phones in every room. I don't know. He's crazy. Anyway, we're back to, we're back to gigging, musicians gigging. Let's get back there. I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm out there. So these two guys at the meeting said, Hey, uh, you want us to come sit with you at the gig? I was playing a local gig in New Orleans, and I'm like, uh, I don't know, what do you mean? And they're like, I don't know. You just want us to come sit with you? You know? I'm like, okay. So they sat there, and they were in front of the stage, and I was like, wow. I don't know what's happening right now, but I feel accountable. I feel safer, and I feel good. I'm all right. And it just... They didn't say nothing. They just sat there. And then that started to kind of percolate in my mind. Okay, I got you. Sorry about it. So I I talked to them, and then I went like, um... Safe at the, you're safe at the show, the, the fellowship of the people being yeah, with yeah. you. Right. So then it percolated and it kind of stayed with me. And then all of a sudden I went, what if I create, I find some people that know how to do this stuff, start some kind of foundation, some sort of organization where we set up a data bank with all these, like, I don't know, like people in sobriety, we vet and we get something going where they can come out to the trumpet player that just got sober that works on Bourbon Street and has no backstage. There's no tour manager keeping the drunks away. He just has to sit right there in every set break, six nights, six sets a night. He needs someone to come sit with him so he can at least have a coffee, talk to someone, so he can go back to work, support his family. Or this, uh, you know, cocktail uh, lounge female singer, she's singing and blah, blah, blah. Same thing. So I started looking at this blue-collar musicians that had it even worse than I had. Right. <clears throat> and then I went, what if we design something like that? Would they show up half an hour before the gig and go, you want to go back to work and you just got sober or something? Great. We're going to send somebody. Let me see who's in your area and who's available. And then they stay maybe 30 minutes after, make sure you're packed up, you're ready, and then, okay, thank you. And then they leave. That's all. They're not getting you sober, not taking you to meetings, they're not, none of that. You're just keeping you company. The most in- to my friend Bill Tate. Yeah. The most incredible thing about it to me is that it's going to help the person who comes to the show just as much as it helps the musician. 
Right. And that's what we've learned. As thousands of people start signing up for this, and we, we, we're growing, and we're helping people on tour all the time, and now we're looking at how do we expand the vetting so we can be even safer? How do we expand basically the, the footprint that we can make and talk to Live Nation and the huge festival promoters and have them, like, just have us be part of this so we can really help these people. And maybe you have 30 years sobriety, but you're having a shaky year. Your wife just died, and you're out there, and you, you can feel it lurking. Right. You can call us as well. So we start like this. So we've, we founded the board. We got the board and the foundation stuff running, and, and we're just kind of a year and a half, two, two years into it. We're developing a new app. We got an app through a Sober Grid, but it's, it's still through them that have been very helpful. Now we want to do something on our own, so we're doing fundraisers. And basically, we want it to be click, 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 and a friend shows up. It's we amazing. want it to be super simple, because you know, especially the first year, you're freaking out. You're like, I don't even have a phone, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yeah. that kind of vibe. Yeah, and, and, and so, all you need is like... That's, that's, yeah. Just to talk to somebody is, is what you need. One, that, yeah, exactly. That person that comes and sits with you. So that's what we did, and it's, it's been um, been really, really um, gratifying and rewarding to see, you know, each person that we help and each artist that gets a little support. So we're doing our part the best we can. I think it's beautiful, and, and it's a lot, a lot of that is like um, – a similar concept to why we did Dopey, which was just to be able to keep addicts company so they'd have something to listen to yeah. that kind of reminded them of themselves or what they've done or where yeah. they've been or whatever. Um, I really appreciate it's the so time great. you put in to this. Um, and I, I think, you know, anything you. we can do uh, to help with uh, send, send me a friend, we would love to do. And, um, you know, I wanted okay. to talk about, you know, so just let me know, you know, we have a little bit of a network and I know that the, the, the addicts who are in recovery that listen to the show would probably love to help out. Uh, write me an email yeah. if you want, Dopey Nation, and let me know if you're interested. But I mean, I'm sure they would be. Um, so maybe we could be yeah, of use well, to you. Yeah, we would love it. Um, and we then love it, man. I, I wanted two more things before I let you go. I wanted a fucking okay. drug story. Can you give me a crazy drug story? <laughs> a dopey story, if you will, without bees. A B-list dopey uh, story. Without bees. Yeah. Well. Well, I got I got one. I had lived. I was kicked out of the house, uh, and I kept trying to like you know sleep on the back porch, and I wasn't allowed inside, and I was out there for days and days, just sweating and dirty and filthy. So. Eventually, she installed an outdoor shower, and she said, okay, you can use this outdoor shower here. Well, one time, my poor wife comes out, and I've been naked for days out there just running around, and I had this old medieval sword. And uh, so what I had started to see were these hallucinations, and they've been going on for days. And I, I can describe these people to you, but I started to see these people they were camouflaged uh, as the plant that they were in front of. Or what the were you using? Were you, were, you were smoking. You were smoking coke. What the were you yard. using? And they were, they were all over. And I was like talking to them and discussing things. And I said, and then they would always, after a few hours, they would start 
you know, making love and fucking hard and teasing me and saying, you can't be part of this. I know you wish you could, but you can't. And I was like, come on, man. Come on down here, right here, so we can do it together. I know. And they would keep floating around and moving. So one day she comes out, and I'm out there naked, and I got the sword, and I am chopping down everything I can. I'm hitting the fences and the trees, and then I'm kids get the fuck off my property you motherfucker i'm sick of y'all chasing my ass fucking all over my property stop fucking on my property and she goes okay goodbye (laughs) that's one story i had andrews what were you on for that you were you were were smoking coke was that your freebasing crazy psychosis that was was free yeah free 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 basing and sometimes speedballing you know so go in and out yeah right um Thank you. Yep. That's a crazy fucking fucking naked. It's naked and afraid meets Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones in your backyard. So <laughs> on, on, on free base. I appreciate that. Now, be- yeah, before I love it. before I let you go, I just, uh, you know, your friend and one of my heroes, uh, Dr. John, just died. Um, yeah. And uh, and he was an amazing uh, musician, amazing junkie, amazing person in recovery. Did he have an impact on you? Uh, it was a huge influence, even before we became, you know, friendly with each other. And and he just, you know, he had a way of, of I don't know, he he kept it light, but every comment would be so deep and right. it'd be so profound. And he would take on this persona of this night tripper thing, and he would develop this language that he, you know, but he really, it was the source was his wisdom really and his his he was awoke i mean he was definitely he knew the things that we're talking about as far as the spirituality part is a big part of his his identity so but he delivered it in such a unique way so he was a big influence and then as a friend you know he would always look out and before i got clean he would take me aside and just kind of talk to me and tell me to you know take care of my stupid ass and and he would look out for me in small ways. He would Amazing. call me and tell me a little bit about the the sorrows of his family stuff that was going on. But we weren't close friends. But we were, you know, we were friendly. We talked, and we we always had a good time at the sessions, or at the gigs we did together, and then occasional phone phone conversation. But he was a big influence, had a great impact, and he he was part of the three people that got me sober, you know. Right. And, and like, what a, what a part of the New Orleans scene in general. Um, but, but, oh. but thank you so much, Anders. It was a joy having you on and you really, you really gave it to us. So I appreciate it, man. Oh, God bless. Thank you so much for having me. So that was incredibly wonderful and honorable to have, uh, Anders Osborne on Dopey, which is something I've always wanted. Something else I've always wanted is to have my friend, DK, come back on Dopey. So I called him up, and he's agreed to come on. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. Hello, Dopey Nation. Nice, and it sounds good. We got, the, we got you coming through. This is the new phone jammy. You're coming through the Bose Microlink two-way speaker into the new AKG P90 microphone, and I have headphones on. So this is a whole new ballgame. Wow. That's impressive. I, went, I have no idea what any of that means. I don't. I don't really either, which is the the really bad part. Um, <laughs> I went. I went to B and H today 
to to like check out gear to try to perfect um you know sound quality for the show and it was a little orthodox dude who's trying to sell me a bunch of shit and i was like i don't really want that i don't really want that the dude's name was Yudi and uh he's like i am not trying to upsell you and I said, I said, I know. As he's trying to upsell you. No, I don't think he was trying to upsell me. I mean, you've been to B and H a billion times. They're pretty straightforward over there. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember. I, it's been a long time. I, I went there. They still. I was buying silver paper. Exactly. I was going to say, me and DK used to go to your shop on 18th Street, and I would steal boxes of photo paper. <laughs> but I decided not to say that. That's probably wise. Yeah. Don't tell me you're stealing from them. So I'm considering buying this very fancy podcaster setup with a touchscreen display that has a, a, a phone in and all this shit. Um, but so far, I'm not doing it. I, I'm, I'm thinking about it, though. It looks pretty, pretty impressive. Well, do you have a studio? Like, do you set up, like, tapestries and, like, have, like, your giant phone in the middle where you espouse your all your knowledge? No, I'm up I mean, in... That's what I'm thinking. That's what you picture when you hear the show, that I'm in some, like, glamorous fucking place? Yeah. Isn't no. that where... Is... I'm up in my okay. attic. There's a bunch of shit. Like, I don't have any shelves, so there's, like, shit strewn everywhere. Like everywhere, uh, like just papers on top of papers on top of papers. I have cats hats and dopey hats and oive hats and old old mugs with orange peels in them and and empty cans of seltzer and it's like it's not a pretty picture. There's chocolate wrappers. Chill that place out, man. Yeah, it is not. It is not the chill tapestry strewn studio that you would imagine. Um, but dopey nation, if you don't remember, DK is a. Uh, very old friend of mine. We met. What was it? What do you? How long ago do you think we met? Ninety-three. So what? Fifteen, six. Oh no, not fifteen. <laughs> Twenty-five, 25 years, years ago. Twenty-five years ago. Twenty-five years ago. And Dave and I really came up. You know, our drug. We came up doing drugs together. Yeah, yeah. Well, we yeah. It was music, movies, and drugs, and television. Not in that order. Radio. What no. order? I mean, we, we, we met. DK was like drinking heavy, and we were like, we. Were, I wasn't drinking heavy. I was. I was not a heavy drinker when I met you. I was just. I had just found weed when I met you. Right, and you were you were just like, was, you were like a normal kid, and you would like yeah, go out was, to parties and drink, and we and in our room we stayed there and we smoked bong hits and we didn't leave the room. And then do you remember when we moved my computer in and we played X Wing? Nonstop. I do. I remember, in fact, we would smoke a ton of weed and like you weren't allowed. Obviously, you weren't allowed to smoke weed in the dorms. And and yeah. we got like busted a million times smoking weed. So we set up the system <laughs> and uh, and the system was that you had to take a tiny bong hit uh, or, or a big bong hit if you could clear the whole thing, suck the whole thing down and then open the window, get it out the window, and close the window without a trace of smoke. No smoke in the room. No smoke in the room. And what? And if anybody put smoke in the room, I kicked them out. And I was That's mean. Right. I was very mean. <laughs> you were. It was, it was very strict. I was very strict. But you got busted all the time, and, we, and you lived right next to the RA. Exactly. So, and Dave. And she was constantly. 
Yeah, she was always up our butts, and she uh, it was bad. Yeah. But the system worked, and Dave put his computer in, and we started playing this Star Wars game. And I remember one night, X-wing. I, I put on uh, a song by Desmond Decker, this song called Fu Manchu, and I put it on repeat. <laughs> and and me and and my roommate Ryan went out to our band rehearsal, and when we came back hours later, Dave was still <laughs> listening to the one song. On repeat, which was just amazing. <laughs> I had no interest. All I, all I had interest in doing was getting to the next level. You were a master levels. of that game too. You were too. I, I, that was a great one. We I, sometimes we'd have co-pilots. Somebody'd have the bong, pack the bong, yeah, and then you'd run the like a co-pilot. Yeah, yeah, and and our, our we ran that game. And our pot, our pot smoking and acid taking. It was in Ithaca College, and our pot smoking and acid taking yeah. were pretty prodigious. You know, yeah. we, we were pretty like full on, and Dave knew Todd really well. Um, I did know Todd, and um, and we just sort of became crazy stoners together. And like, did you notice like um, like when did you? I mean, I guess did you? When did you notice that your life was taken over by weed? I made a conscious decision when I started smoking it and I had, uh, uh, I don't know, like a profound moment in Ithaca in my dorm room. And I think I was listening to Cypress Hill. Okay. And I just, and I, I smoked by myself. I got like an eighth and I literally, I, I can remember the day I said, you know what? From now on, I'm smoking weed all the time. Yeah. And that's what I did. Yeah. Along with everything else that came along with it. The acid, the mushrooms. The... And we kind of... We didn't really delve into, like, cocaine or anything until after Ithaca. No, yeah, there were very... I mean, I took a few pills here and there, but I didn't drink. I just smoked weed and took psychedelics, and but we did it constantly, you know? Yes. And, and the other thing, the funny thing is that... uh you know, as we discovered weed and psychedelics, we discovered like '60s culture, and somehow, like, we got <laughs> yes. we got a copy of the Woodstock movie, and uh, yeah. and we would watch that fucking movie constantly. You know, over and over, it was so good. It's still good. Well, we were the other night. The other night, what inspired all this was the other night. Uh, I was flipping through the channels, and I see the Woodstock director's cut is on cable so i took a picture of something and i sent it to dave and uh and what did you say it was the dude doing kundalini kundalini yoga yeah it's like uh, a bolt of lightning yeah, is going up. up your spine man i take it's like hit. doing drugs did you ever do dmt you have done dmt it's kind of like dmt except without the drugs did you ever do dmt i didn't i know you did i got to do I never. DMT. um but we probably watched woodstock um, enough times that we were at the festival for like six months. That's how much we watched Woodstock. It was like never ending Woodstock. And to, to finish your story, when you called me up the other day, it was, uh, <laughs> it was what's the band? The guy, it's uh, just the funniest line ever where he gets up to the mic and he 10 goes, 10 years after. This is all I'm coming home by helicopter. And, and that rips into some insane blues jam. But that was a that was like basically like you have weed, you have Woodstock, you have reggae music, and then you kind of have like you feel like you're 
you know, Dave was an artist. He was a he's an amazing photographer. He was an aspiring filmmaker at the time. And the idea of being able to be an artist along with the drugs was very seductive, you know? Yeah, that's what you wanted. You wanted the whole thing. You wanted to be a rock star, kind of. Well, but I think yeah. you wanted to be an artist. And, and I think that the way the bud hit your brain was it showed you, like, the beauty of art and, and, and real possibility and, like, what you could do, you know? Because Dave was a, one of the best photographers I ever knew. Um, just took amazing pictures. Oh, and, um, and then we went. You took to, great pictures, too, though. Yeah, I could take okay pictures, but you were better. And you were better at printing and you understood composition. And it was, and, and like, Dave and I then. I got busted um, with weed, and uh, and I transferred out of Ithaca to purchase. Uh, I got suspended, and but I transferred before the suspension hit. And Dave took a semester in Los Angeles, and then we met up again uh, at art school in um, in Purchase. We both developed heroin habits kind of independently of each other, really, right? I would. Yeah, I think so, because I was with Jenny. I was living in White Plains, and you were in, where were you? I was in Manhattan. When did yours develop? You were in Manhattan? Well, I think we developed the habits at exactly the same time. You were using the same dealer that I was using. We just didn't get high together too often. Yeah, I think that's it. Although we did play a lot of N64. Do you remember 1080? Oh, yeah. I remember doing a lot of dope in, in me and Jenny's room and playing 1080. Yeah, yeah, I remember doing that in Manhattan too, um, and then and then I had gotten a job uh, working uh, as a, a sort of like a TV producer, TV host, and I would hire Dave to shoot video for me. And uh, in the beginning, we weren't addicted. We we interviewed KRS One, and we interviewed Pavement, and we interviewed Built to Spill, and we hadn't gotten our habits yet. Man or Astro Man? Remember Man or Astro Man? I do. It was a fun interview. It was like, but we were still not heroin addicts. But then after we became heroin addicts, that that whole show went to shit, and our friendship went to shit. And we would go to shows, and I would always be like, Dave, do you want me to get you some dope? And he would be like, nah, man, it's all right. I'll be all right. Don't no." Or he would, I think he would want to take like a moral high ground. You know, you were like, no, nah, I don't need it or something. Right. Do you remember? No, I think I just didn't have any money for it. And then, and I always, it was like, I, I want to stop. I didn't want to keep doing it. And, but I remember it was, uh, you were, you were smart enough that you would see ahead and you'd be like, you know, I'm going to be in this situation. I'm going to need it. I'm going to get it. I, I wasn't that smart. I would, I would say I don't need it. Uh, I'm done. I can go do this thing by myself. You know, I don't need anything. And then I would get there and I'd be like, fuck. Yeah. Well, I there's mean, no way I could do this without any dope. I think, I think for me, what it was, was that I knew once I was addicted to it, that I always would need it and that I was not going to ever not have it. And that's why I was, I was such an addict for such a long time like that's like the opposite of how todd used and kind of the opposite i mean how you used you know you you would find yourself sick on here and there and you would just be like sleeping or whatever uh and then you'd get it but i I made sure i had it every day and i remember i think it was 99 we shot there was this hippie festival in bridgeport connecticut called gathering of the vibes and uh it was like all these jam bands were playing and 
I knew it was going to be fun, but I knew it couldn't be enough fun if we didn't have heroin. You know, like, I just knew we were going to be sick. And, and I think that, you know, the cutthroat junkie thing had developed a bit. And I had a huge habit, and I was making good money, you know. So I, like, brought a ton of dope, but I was like, dude, do you want me to bring you dope? And you were like, no. And um, so when we got there, you were like, give me a bag. And I was like, no fucking way. And we got in this huge fight. But then I think I wound up giving you, like, a half a bag so you wouldn't get sick or something. I, I sort of remember that. Do you remember that? You were I do. You were sympathetic. It was, <clears throat> but I was an I, I was an idiot for even going without it. And you did it, you you. I think at that point, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think you'd kind of almost had enough of me. There was times I, you had stuff scheduled, like uh, interviews and whatnot, and I wouldn't show. Oh yeah, I'd that was that made me or, crazy. Yeah. That made me. I never had enough of you as a friend. Maybe I had enough of you as a, an employee. What are you cooking eggs over there? What do you got going on? I gotta feed the cats. Jesus, do you know how sensitive this high-powered microphone is? <laughs> no, I have no idea. You heard that? I, I could hear. I, I thought you were you were like taking out pots and pans. All right, I'm gonna read an email. You listening? Okay. You listening? Right. Yeah. It says, "Dear Dave." I'm writing this while I sit in my local pharmacy in a small New Zealand town where I'm sitting with two 8-milligram Suboxone tablets under my tongue. I'm a 33-year-old afflicted geezer with a 19-year on-and-off history of addiction, debauchery, and dopey shit. Much more on than off, if I'm honest. I was born in London, England. I've spent time both using and sober all over Britain, England, the Gold Coast, and Brisbane in Australia, and in San Francisco, Manhattan, and now New Zealand. I found your podcast three weeks ago on Spotify, not long after commencing the latest in my 16 or so attempts at sobriety. I relapsed three months ago after getting one hard-earned year under my belt. What a wanker I am. Anyway, I'm on Suboxone again because I'm trying to keep my current job, which is pretty sweet and pays quite well. I have a beautiful partner who has somehow put up with my shit for eight long suffering years and a five-year-old daughter who is my absolute world and who I love more than I thought I could ever love anything or anyone. I also own the house we live in, hence my not wanting to lose my job and deciding to go on the Suboxone. Now I'm once again trying to get my life back on the straight and narrow. I started looking at recovery-related stuff, including podcasts, and found yours. I fucking was hooked from the get-go, man. I have no one I can talk to who can actually emphasize with my shit, so I find listening to you incredibly cathartic. It's like listening to an old friend I never knew I had. I'm up to episode 107 so far, and it's been an awesome whirlwind ride. I love the banter between you and Chris, and I'm so fucking sorry to hear he's no longer with us. Another fallen comrade. There are no monuments for dead addicts. I wish there were because some of us burn so bright while we're here, like saints with track-marked stigmata. But we tend to get forgotten, despite the fact that sometimes a few of us rise and stand for something, like you and Chris. Anyway, if you're ever in need of some straight dopey material, then I'd love to oblige. From snorting dope and smoking cigarettes on a cafe Pacific flight from London to Auckland to getting arrested and detained in Hong Kong on criminal damage and reckless public endangerment charges with a half ounce of smack and a 110 milligram 
Valiums wrapped in a condom up my ass at the time. <laughs> I actually have a recording of that. I'm going to play that later. Uh, to getting shot at by one armed crackhead Jamaican smack dealer in London, to taking a huge dose of acid and mushrooms, and running screaming at a poor woman and her daughter on a woodland walk to scare them away because I thought they were turning into red deer and were going to charge me. I've got some doozies. Anyway, I love your show, mate. It's become a hugely important, helpful, and entertaining part of my life. I'd love to talk to you and or tell you some stories, uh, but it's been sweet just to write this email. Keep up the good work, man. Stay strong and loads of love, respect, and appreciation from me. And that's Mick. And that's pretty sweet, right, Dave? Oh, that's yeah, it is. I don't know about elevating, you know, junkies to saintly status, but it's it's a sweet email. I mean, I feel for that guy. I hope he's doing well. What is Suboxone? Wow, you're I'm out of it. You're really out of the loop. Suboxone is like modern it's sort of like similar to what you'd call modern day methadone it's like a synthetic uh opiate blocker that kind of like oh, oh okay i know what it is yeah um yeah so it, it blocks any effects of the opium so it doesn't so nobody wants to do it right well or that's the idea it blocks it but it also activates the opioid receptors in your brain so you feel you don't feel sick you know what i mean and you also get addicted to it you have to take oh, it. Oh, so it is. So it's methadone. It's Just, not methadone. It's suboxone. It's it's a different right. substance, but it, it serves a similar purpose. We'll say. Okay. And you have to take it every day, or you get sick. <laughs> so it's just like methadone, which is just like heroin. Well, I mean, a lot of people who listen to the show, I, I always say exactly what you, I used to say exactly what you just said, but a lot of people who listen to the show are on Suboxone, and they, lots of people say they live really productive lives on Suboxone, and it's way better than being strung out on heroin. And I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Were you ever on methadone? Um, no. Uh-uh. Because it, when, you, uh, when you, you would go down and get methadone, but you would keep it for yourself. Well, I was and on then, the methadone clinic. I was, I was getting yeah, my dose. I wasn't, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, right, exactly. Yeah, so I never I never did it. I was either, I, and I, I still don't, and I'm not, I don't want to, you know, cheapen anybody's experience or whatever their therapy is or whatever their recovery is. You know, whatever keeps them active and somewhat healthy and, and living and keeping their house or, you know, um, keeping their job and, making sure they're good parents and taking care of their, their children and their loved ones, then, you know, I guess that's what you got to do. I personally, I, I, I see some futility in it. You know, it seems like you're just replacing one with another, but you know, what do I know? Well, I mean, you everybody's have, you, an individual. Yeah. You have your own problems, you know, Mr. Exactly. Mr. Mr. Judge, judging Suboxone. I'm not judging. Jesus Christ. No, no, I'm not. No. Hey, Dopey Nation, I'm not <laughs> judging any of you. I think you're all fantastic. And everybody has their own. You're scared for the their Dopey Nation. You're, you're scared of the Dopey Nation turning on you. I, no, but I don't want them to. No, of course but, not. Um, no. I, the you point, know, I care about all these people. I, I mean, I don't know them, but. You know, I you I don't want, I them. don't wish anybody well, or I don't wish anybody bad, and I wish them well. And you know, if suboxone, if it's methadone, don't do smack. You know, if you're shooting smack in the arm, and you're probably not going to live very long. And I'd rather see them live than not, because you know we see 
what happens to to our Todd. friends. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and Todd so. never even shot it. It just fucking killed him immediately. And uh, and last week was uh, the one year anniversary of Todd's death, which I don't shut up about. But uh, you know, it's just mind boggling. You know, it is. It's sad. Todd's not here. It's horrible. And the other the other story that I wanted to attempt telling um, is is because Dave Dave and I like. You know, we've been friends a long, long time. And like I said, our friendship barely... I mean, I remember when I copped that last dope and you left. I gave, He bought... Dave bought the dope. Dave was like, I have X amount of money and I'm driving home. I need to buy dope. And, I, and like, you bought me dope because I got the dope. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I gave you yours and, and, and we went our separate ways. And, like, it was bad. You know what I mean? We didn't talk for a long time after that. Um, but... Uh, but I remember before that, uh, we were both hooked and we were trying to get off of dope. And I decided that we needed to sequester ourselves someplace. So, uh, <laughs> so like, and my parents had a house upstate. We subjected ourselves to about maybe eight to nine hours of hell, of absolute pure hell. I, I, I would love to be able to, like, be a fly on the wall in that room and see how long it took for us to say, fuck it, let's just drive back. You know what I mean? I feel like it was 10 hours. I feel like it was almost 24 hours, but I'm sure it was like two or, you know, it may have been like an hour and we were both like, fuck this, we're going back. And did we go to a rainbow gathering on that trip? Yeah, man, we were playing uh, Funkadelic. Yeah. Yeah. We're driving through. Yeah. <laughs> Thought we were schooling all the old hippies. Yeah, yeah. And then that's the that's where that dude. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like he must have like herpes or something all over his lips. Oh, that's the funny <laughs> story. He, he wanted to share a pipe with you, and you're like, "No, dude." <laughs> no. And that's like when we found a chillum. No, that that's not what happened. I had I had gotten a chillum, and if you guys don't know what a chillum is, it's like this clay cylinder. That the idea is you put it between your fingers and you smoke it out of your hand so your lips touch your hand and you burn the top of the, the weed and the chillum so you don't touch the end of the pipe. Um, and I, I, I love that thing. I bought it at like a dead show at Madison Square Garden and I had it forever, that thing. You remember that thing, that clay one with, I the, do. with yeah, the tree on the side? So we're smoking weed with these fucking hippies at the Rainbow Gathering and this little dude with fucking he had like pointy ears and like he was like a hobbit yeah and he, and he totally had he totally had herpes and he takes the chillum and he puts his mouth on the chillum and I was like dude you know I was like I remember your face you were, you were just like what the fuck are you doing but I don't think you said anything to him. I think it was just like this look on your face. You just <laughs> devastated that this, <laughs> his lips were all fucked up, juicy and like with boils. And yeah, I may be dramatic, but no, it was, he was like a little, it, little middle earth type creature. But I think that we had a lot of, a lot of crazy adventures and, um, and, uh, you know, it was miraculous that, uh, we both got off of heroin and, uh, it took me a lot longer than it took you. And um, and Dave has a beautiful family and a nice life, and um, you know that's worth yeah. mentioning. You know, yeah, it's yeah, and it's worth it. I mean, sometimes you get stuck in that pit and you can't see out of it, and 
it's hard to imagine anything but the pit you're in. Right. But when you're out of it, um, and you can kind of look back at the pit after you've left it behind, I think it gets easier. I don't know if that helps anybody, but. I think you knew once you stopped using drugs that you didn't want to use drugs again. Like that was like you had you had gone so far that you couldn't imagine ever going back. Hundred percent. I have no interest in doing anything. None at all. Right. I don't want to eat pills. I don't. No. I don't have any interest in any of it. So before we go, I want to play. Uh, it's from that same guy, that guy Mick in New Zealand, and uh, a little Dobie voicemail. You ready? You want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dobie Nation. This is Mick here, and um, I thought I'd just uh, flick you a message with um, with some dopey shit. So here's a little story that happened about 15 years ago. I was 20 or so at the time. My dad was about to turn 50, and he decided to have his birthday party in New Zealand. Um, now we're, we're we're from London in the UK originally, and uh, but Dad had a lot of friends uh, who'd moved over to New Zealand, and he knew some New Zealanders as well through his work. What? Anyway, so he wanted to have his big birthday party in New Zealand. He's going to come over here for a few weeks, um, and he asked me if I wanted to come. Now I'd been talking about doing some backpacking uh, for a while, despite at this point already having had a monster heroin habit for the last three years since I was 17 um but I thought well I'll get clean in New Zealand why not I'll go there and I'll detox while I'm backpacking it'll be great I won't even notice the withdrawals so my mate who I had a sort of sort of business with at the time Robbo we were um self-employed we did like window cleaning and maintenance work um and he was my drug buddy at the time and my partner in crime other various nefarious junkie activities and um he says, yeah, let's have a crack at getting clean. So uh, we booked our tickets to meet mum and dad in New Zealand um, and uh, we got some weight. We got half ounce of smack and we got about 110ml diazepam, Valiums, and uh, we got some Zopiclone. And the plan was to wean ourselves off over, you know, a few weeks to nothing, um, a, a low final dose, and then, then get ourselves through the rest of, you know, the withdrawals with the benzos. So my aunt, God bless her, she um, paid the difference to bump us up to business class for the flight. And the flight was London to Hong Kong with a three-hour stopover in Hong Kong and then Hong Kong to Auckland, New Zealand. So the night before we got we had a you know typical thing fucking party up um and then the next morning we started the day with a monster fucking hit of dope said goodbye to the needles cuz we weren't going to try and take needles over I wrapped the smack up in two parcels one big parcel and one little parcel wrapped them both in condoms and shoved them on my ass uh Rob took care of the benzos um, by the time we got to Heathrow Airport, we were fucking already trolled. We'd washed down a few, a few benzos with some rum and had the monster hair gear. And I think we smoked a joint as well. Um, and then get on the plane, 
sort of borderline blackout at this point on the plane. We're fucking just off our tits. So like, this is the whole plan is crashing and burning before it's even started. Um, I'm stealing bottles of wine off the stewardess's food trolley as it goes past, and so I can't help stealing when I'm on benzos. <laughs> and I fucking, I, oh, I was smoking cigarettes in the toilets, and the, the, they smell it, so they come and they 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 tell us off because they think it's us because we're the loudest, most obnoxious fuck ups on the plane, sitting with all these suits and posh people in business class, you know, two total fucking recalcitrant. Horrendous junkie fuck ups, um, hanging out with the rich people. Anyway, uh, I remember this. I went to the toilet about six, seven hours into the flight, and I snorted a line of of gear. I pulled the parcels out of my bum eventually, and I opened the smaller parcel because that was the plan. That was the smaller parcel was to get us through the the flight. So I cracked that one open, chopped up a line on the toilet seat, and snorted that. And I had a knock on the door. And I remember this through the blackout. I just opened it, and I don't... Like, it could have been anybody, but I just somehow thought, oh, that must be Robbo, and fucking thank God it was. Because I opened the fucking door, and there was, you know, the half ounce sitting there, plus the little bit we'd fucking bought for the for the journey. Um, anyway, I swapped with him, and he went in and chopped himself a line and fucking smoked a cigarette as well, and, and I swapped with him again, and I had a fucking cigarette, I think, in there again, and went back to our seats and drunk some more wine, and Rob... At this point, passed out, and he's woken up with a jolt, and he's kicked out and broke the TV screen in the seat in front of him, smashed it. Um, and by this point, they've had enough of us. So the the stewardess gets the co-pilot. He comes out and tells us they've they've radioed the police in Hong Kong, and um, you know they've 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 had enough of us. So we get held on the flight. We get held on the plane when it lands, um, and the police come on, and they. Um, they, they they take pictures of my hands, both our hands, and I'm, I start shitting myself now because I I thought they were taking pictures of my track marks, um, but it turns out they weren't. They thought we'd punch the TV, so it was photographs for evidence or whatever. So they take us down the police station. They give us um, in in the the Hong Kong airport police station. They issue us a letter saying we are permanently banned from flying with Cathay Pacific and we're under arrest. Uh, we're being charged with criminal damage. And I think it was something like reckless public endangerment. And so by this point, I'm getting really worried. They put us in the cells, and the cells are open-fronted cells, just bars, and they face into the police station office. So there's no way of doing any drugs. Uh, we're really ill by this point. We've been in there for, oh, maybe uh, 18 hours. Um, and they were just fucking with us, really, like two two spoiled white kids fucking up in their country, you know, so they, they, they made an example of us, so they, 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 they kept us for a bit longer, and eventually I, they, they, they told us what we'd been charged with, and they said we had to, we were gonna, we had to go to court in three weeks to face the charges, so, uh, by this point, I was getting really, really massively sick, acute withdrawals, and I, um, I, I, I talked to the the police officer into letting us uh, letting me pay bail if I could because we had no cash on us and, but I said to him if he could take me to the poli- uh, back to the airport I could withdraw the cash and pay bail so he said okay he took me to the back to the airport I withdrew cash it was equivalent of about 300 US each for bail which we paid and they told us our luggage was in storage at Hong Kong airport they gave us a receipt for that um 
and he wouldn't give me my cigarettes back. I remember because I because we were charged with with the smoking on the plane was part of the charge. He wouldn't give us the cigarettes back because they were evidence. But I talked him into giving me a cigarette. So we desperately rushed back to the airport, which was about fifteen minutes from where the police station was to the terminal. We got our baggage out. Um, and obviously went to the toilet and um, got ourselves well was the priority but we were issued uh, our, our onward flights to New Zealand were cancelled so my poor parents was, were in New Zealand at the airport waiting to pick us up and we never arrived um, so they were terrified uh, they didn't know no one knew anything so I managed to get a phone call through to them and told them a hugely embellished lie about what happened which just painted myself as a total victim which of course I wasn't I was a fuck up junkie but um so the plan we then came up was with well we've got to stay in Hong Kong because we need we have to go to court um and so we've got all this money in the bank to 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 go traveling uh so why don't we um why don't we live it up in Hong Kong for a few weeks so that was that was the most logical thing. We can we can get a cheap flight with Virgin back to London, um, a lot cheaper than getting a flight on to New Zealand and then having to get back home after. So we uh, we stayed in Hong Kong. Uh, we ended up staying there for about six six weeks because uh, we when we did go to court three weeks later we. Um, the um, reckless public endangerment charges were dropped and we were just fined roughly the same as our bail money roughly equivalent of our bail was what we were fined for breaking the tv screen in the um on the plane so we 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 got off but um anyway i've <laughs> i've i've dragged it on i'm nearly at 10 minutes fucking hell this is way too long so anyway that i've i'll i'll send you another voicemail with uh with some stories about what we got up to when we were in hong kong cuz they are just the fucking creme de la creme of dopey, of my dopey shit. Like this, this what's happened so far pales into insignificance compared to what actually we fucking what we got up to while we were in Hong Kong. So I'll send you another one next week um, with with all the gory details about what we got up to while we were there. Um, if anyone is interested in listening. Um, but thank you for listening so far, for your patience. Uh, uh, probably I'm not the best storyteller, probably. But anyway, lots of love to everyone out there. Stay strong. Dopey Nation, I love you all. Thank you, Dave. And uh, keep listening. I know I will. And I'll speak soon. So thank you, Mick. That's a crazy fucking dopey story. What would you think, Dave? It sounded like they had a great plan. Like they were going to detox while they were hiking. You know, they had... All the drugs they needed. Right. They had a whole complete plan. It was like a better version of our going upstate to kick story. Yeah, it's a good kick plan, but the kick plans never go well because eventually you get sick. Yeah, no matter what. You think you think the ween is going to be some, like, feather drifting oh, yeah. down to earth, but it's never like that. Never. It's horrible. It's hell on earth. Which is why I always recommend going away. But uh, I do appreciate that that uh, voicemail and the email. Mick is obviously very much uh, the real thing, you know. And um, I just got I just got a note on Instagram from somebody who said in the the last episode. You don't know this, but in the last episode, a woman from the BBC interviewed us because they're going to do a piece on Dopey on the BBC, and um, this guy. 
or I, the guy said my dad was on the show and the guy said I was too rude to my father, which creates a bad uh, show for an English person that they can't handle such uh, impoliteness. And I, I'm kind of freaked out that maybe I really did have a terrible example for this English woman. So you think you were were you rude to her? No, I was rude to my dad. I was totally oh, rude, rude to, my, to your dad. I was totally rude to my dad. I'm always rude to my dad on the show. Always. What'd you say to Alan? I said a so, lot. Of, I said a lot of bad stuff to him. I always do. I always do. It's part of. It's like this. It, man. That man's been through a lot. I know. I know. You're right. And I think this is where I'll take a moment to say this. I'm sorry to my father. He's been through a lot. But I think it makes the show better when I make fun of him on the show. I really do. <laughs> it's like you have to keep the show going and you need some fucking, you know, you need, it needs to be funny. And my dad is good at being the fall guy. You know, he knows I love him. He knows I'm grateful to him. And I think the English reporter knew it, too. But anyway, thank you, Dave, for coming on. I do appreciate your time. And, um, you know, we went through a lot together, right? We have. We still are. Right. I don't think we're, we're done. Well. We're done with with the, with some of it, you know. We haven't. Yeah. I mean, we had that last dopey story where we where we uh, road trip to Trap, Pennsylvania, to see our friend's band. But you didn't even smoke weed on that trip, right? No, I was stone cold sober. Yeah, it was you, me, and Todd. Me and Todd were smoking weed, and you were stone cold sober. But you smoked weed when we got there with all those fucking hippies, and you freaked yeah, out. Yeah, it was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So we, at the end of the show, we say, uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and uh, fucking toodles for Chris. Um, you want to say that? Uh, yeah, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris, and peace, love, and for Todd. Yeah, man. Miss you. Yeah, definitely. All right, Dave. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Dave. All right. Got to do a double ending because it's the 2 millionth download and we got to thank some people. 2 million downloads is nothing to sneeze at and it's because you guys love the show and uh, the show means something to you and the show means something to me. Um, When Chris and I started it, I didn't realize it would become so uh, important to so many people and uh, and that's really special to me. So I appreciate that. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank the Dopey Nation Facebook uh, administrators for taking care of uh, Dopey Nation Facebook. That's Andrew and Paulina and Leah and Catherine. I want to thank um, everybody in the Dopey Nation group for participating. I think that's awesome. I want to thank that guy, David Mescalini. I hope I'm saying his name right for inspiring me to use Soul Finger on this show. I want to thank uh, Sam for all of his hard work and guidance and advisement on how to make the show as good as it can be. Sam is crucial uh, to the shows these days, so thank you, Sam. I want to thank Brad. He fucking edited the uh, the DK piece, and Brad also came up with the whole show, and Brad is always uh, a phone call away to help out and guide the show, so thank you, Brad. And he also listens to the shows. Usually he's asleep by now, but thank you, Brad. And, uh, and yes, I stole the show from you, so sorry. Um... Thank you, Cormac, for Reddit. Thank you, everybody, on Twitter. And, um, you know, there's something else. Oh, yes. We got tons of new stickers. If you guys want any stickers, you Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. If you want fancy stickers, you should just send me 15 or 20 bucks with your address. If you want cheapy stickers, send me 5 to 10 with your address. If you guys want any of our Dopey hats, 
They're 25 bucks, 30 bucks with stickers. Again, Venmo me money with your address. If you want to support the show, that's a good way to do it. Another good way to do it is uh, go to Dopey Podcast, the Patreon, which is uh, www.patreon slash Dopey Podcast. You can pledge or you can be a subscriber or you can do nothing. Do whatever you want. I, I certainly uh, am not going to beg you guys for your money. Um, but I do love the money. I'll have to tell you that. And uh, I want to end the show with Anders Osborne's song, Mind of a Junkie. Thank you, Anders. I want to thank that dude, Mick, for really laying it down. And um, send in funny drug stories to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Help keep dopey dopey. And before we go, again, here's Anders Osborne, Mind of a Junkie, and Stay Strong Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, who we miss.
I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good, so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be be so good, so bad, so bad, I want to be good, so bad, bad desire's all I ever had, and my shadow's getting smaller and smaller, and it's time to where I stand, shadow's getting smaller and smaller, and it's time to where I stand. busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had